Turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to walk about halfway into this chapter tonight, and then we're just going to have to pause for a little while. We have Christmas activities coming up here in the month of December, which are always you know, quite enjoyable. Um, the choir event, and then the meal, and then the children's program, and then Christmas and New Year's both fall on a Sunday, and so our sessions decided to meet only in the morning on those two Lord's Days. So we'll, we'll pick Matthew 24 back up, but it'll be a, a few weeks, give you time to read and reflect on it, or, or continue to think on the Advent season. But we'll begin tonight, Matthew 24, and I will read beginning at verse 1 and ending in verse 14. We'll go a little longer than that tonight, but we'll, we'll read those for the opening read. So hear now God's word. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its building. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another, everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Amen. We'll end our reading there, and let's pray for God's help. Father in heaven again, thank you for your word. It is beautiful, it reveals Christ to us, it is our comfort, it brings us to God to know you and to worship you. So Spirit of God, tonight, be our teacher, open our eyes, help us to understand this passage, and perhaps even more importantly, to live in the light of it, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. May our understanding translate into action. Thank you for Jesus Christ. May he be central even in this curious passage. May we see him in his cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Matthew 23, we spent a few weeks in that chapter looking at Jesus delivering his verdict on Israel's religious leaders. They had failed to lead the people spiritually and to fulfill their vocation as God's people. And at the end of that verdict, Jesus warned of a coming judgment for their covenant unfaithfulness. He used language such as, you know, the blood of these righteous martyrs is going to come upon you. You're going to give an account for how you treated God's messengers. And especially at the end of the chapter, using language like, your house is left to you desolate. 
And the disciples heard these words and they followed Jesus as he left the temple and they began to inquire further about the certainty and the nature of that judgment. And interestingly, they asked particularly how it related to Jerusalem's temple. In the opening verse tonight, we saw Jesus going out, and it's almost as if the disciples are, are running up to him and say, Hey, wait a minute, teacher, you know, look at these buildings. You know, How can you say these things when we have such a magnificent city and a magnificent temple? That they heard what Jesus was saying. Yet if the house is left desolate, that means that judgment is coming. And so Jesus responds to their question, he responds to their wonderment with what we read here in Matthew 24, detailed description of the coming judgment on Jerusalem, and counsel to be ready for the unknown day of his return. Now last week when we were together, or two weeks ago I should say, we waded into the passage by looking at its structure. I pointed out that in verses 3 through 34, or 35, excuse me, you have Jesus focusing on the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. In verse 36, there's a shift to Jesus focusing on his second coming. And we make that distinction because there's a very different flavor in the two sections. The disciples say, when will these, ha these things happen? When will these stones be torn down? And what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus tends to take those, seems to take those, as two separate events. He gives details in verses 3 through 36 that they can watch for. This will happen, and then this will happen. And when you see this, then do this. We'll look at those tonight. He shifts in verse 36 to say things like, Now, about that day and hour, the day of my coming, well, no one knows. It becomes very general. And the admonition is to watch. There isn't language focused on the coming of Christ in the first section. That language makes its appearance in the second so let's begin tonight by looking at the first section, verses 3 through 34, where Jesus focuses on Jerusalem's judgment. We'll make our way through most of this section before we have to stop this evening. So when Jesus announces judgment on Jerusalem, that's in verse 2, the disciples say, look at these buildings. And in response, Jesus says, oh, you see these things? Well, truly, I tell you. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And the disciples ask, well, when will this happen? And Jesus actually answers that question here in verses 3 through 34. Now, he begins by focusing on preliminary events. There's a frame here I want you to notice in verses 4 and 8. Jesus answered, verse 4, Watch out that no one deceives you. And then verse 8, All these are the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, let me just lay out the general context, Jesus says. Let me just show you some things that will take place, but they do not mean that the judgment is imminent. In other words, there's a sense in which these activities are ordinary. They happen, and they signal that something is happening, but they don't signal the imminent judgment. 
And again, I want you to think of the historical context I've tried to draw attention to often when going through the Gospels. And you can read some of this if you, if you look at the works of Josephus, or even in Acts, there's a few statements made that give us an insight into what things were like in Jesus' time. Remember Gamaliel, when they're trying to figure out, what do we do with these Christians? And he's like, well, remember there was Judas? He, he led that group of people astray, and they all got killed. And, and there was this guy who rose up in a revolt, and, and they got killed. Hey, maybe the Christians are like that. If, if, if God's not in it, nothing will happen to it. That kind of gives us a window into what's happening in Jesus' day. Various revolutionary movements, various groups of freedom fighters trying to rally Israel to rise up at the right moment and throw off Rome's shackles. Well, Jesus is saying that there's going to be events like that happening. That is the general context in which you live. He mentions them here to say they don't necessarily mean that Jerusalem's judgment is about to happen or that the end is near, but rather this is the time in which you live. So what kind of things should the disciples expect in general? Well, according to verse 5, they should expect messianic claimants. Many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. And when Jesus says they'll come in my name, I don't think he necessarily means they'll come in Jesus' name. They're going to come and claim to be Jesus. Rather, they're coming as a Jesus figure. They're coming as a messianic person. They're trying to do or claim the role that belongs to Jesus alone. And many will follow them. You can read in the Gospels ourselves, right? They didn't really like necessarily what Jesus had to say, but others would come and they would like that more. So that will happen. Verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. In other words, there will be civil unrest throughout the land. Again, if you've got various messianic figures and freedom fighters and national movements, that's going to lead to civil unrest. Now again, notice Jesus says these are signs uh, that the end is still to come. We're not at the end yet when you see wars and rumors of war. And again, as I'll be taking the whole passage, when Jesus even refers to the end in this first section, he's referring to the end of Jerusalem and to the end of the temple. I know I've heard in my life, you know, people appealing to the news. I look at these wars, all the world wars in, our, in the previous century and all the wars going on. I mean, the end must be here. And yet Jesus says, you're going to hear wars and rumors. That doesn't mean the end is here. His point is the exact opposite. And he's even putting it in a first century context. Verse 7, because of civil unrest, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. When you have civil unrest, that often leads to famine. It's a natural consequence of the breakdown of society. We were just praying earlier for Ukraine because you've got war, they're knocking out power and they have to deal with the hardness of winter coming on. Jesus says that's going to be going on. Throw in natural disasters like earthquakes and you've got a really difficult situation. But he says again, all these are the beginnings of birth pains, which again is used in some Old Testament context to the suffering that goes on in cities during times of war. So that really just helps locate the general context that Jesus is setting up. So we come then into verses 9 through 14 where he tells us, here's what life will be like during that period. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations 
because of me. So persecution will come during these times. Again, this makes a lot of sense looking at how Jesus' own ministry went. When he said this is what the kingdom of God was like, it clashed with their expectations of the kingdom, and so there was hostility. As the disciples go out in his name and seek to disciple the nations, there will likewise be hostility. As the version of the kingdom that they offer does not line up with what many Israelites are seeking. And another thing that's interesting about the language here in verse 9 and beyond is you have almost identical language earlier in Matthew 10. I'm not going to go back and reread it. If you want to check it, it's verses 17 through 22. But if you remember Matthew 10, that is the passage where Jesus sends the disciples out on a preaching mission. And he says to them, now don't go into the Gentile cities. In other words, this is Israel only. Go and tell them the kingdom has come. But these are some of the things that you are going to endure. Hardship, mistreatment. Now Jesus' words in Matthew 10 already begin to shave into a much broader context. We see that here in verse 9. You're going to be hated by all nations. On the one hand, there's, there is something Israel-centric about this mission. And yet Jesus knows where this whole mission is going and so he begins to use some of this general language, more, more uh, universal, uh, worldwide, that's the right word I'm looking for, a language of all the nations hating you. In other words, some of your persecution will come from religious figures, those in Israel who view you as a traitor to the cause, or an, an enemy of the state, and, and disloyal to Yahweh. That's, that will be one source of persecution. Now another source of persecution will be these national powers, the Romans. You're, on the one hand, they don't care about you. You're, you're a Christian. You don't even become a blip on their radar because all they care about is power. On the other hand, if you're not loyal to them, not loyal to the state, you're interfering with their imperial interests, well, then you're going to come on their radar and be an object of persecution. Jesus is saying it can come from any of those quarters as the gospel goes forward. Furthermore, it may even come from those close to home. Verse 10, At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. So some will abandon the Jesus movement. They may even denounce fellow disciples to the authorities we just read about in verse 9. Others in verse 11 will follow false prophets. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Again, sounds like the Sermon on the Mount once again. Here's the way of the kingdom, but beware, false prophets are standing there to lead people onto the broad way. And again, these false prophets can be of various kind. The Jewish various parties, uh, maybe what we read about in 1 John, where, hey, there, there's a pulling away from the humanity of Jesus, you know, reinterpretations of what it means for him to be Messiah. It can come from all quarters, but Jesus is warning them of these various things. One commentator writes, The unsettled times ahead will provide the false teachers with an opportunity to play on people's fears and hopes, as may be seen from Josephus' record of the enthusiastic response to those nationalist leaders who claim prophetic status. When, when things are breaking down, particularly in the homeland, and, and religious symbols are being threatened and other things are going on, beware, that's ripe opportunity. 
for false prophets who have other interests at heart to take advantage of God's people. And Jesus warns them not to give in to that. And continues to warn then in verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. There will be a hardening. There will be bitterness, perhaps towards God or fellow believers. However, verse 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The path of salvation is that you continue to persevere in the faith as long as it takes. That's, that's the only solution to all these problems. There's no way to get rid of all the false prophets. There's no way to get rid of all the harassment. Jesus says you just have to be deliberate and you just have to be sustained in your faithfulness to the values and the demands of God's kingdom. And when I state it like that, it's, it's not to excuse grace. We talk a lot about grace and the transforming of the heart that leads to obedience. So that's the foundation. That's the underpinning. But at other times in the scriptures, God just calls us to action. Persevere. Endure this hardship. That's the only way to get on the path to salvation. And notice that he concludes this paragraph with a note of hope. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end, and I'll define that end in a moment as Jerusalem's destruction, then that end will come. In other words, you're going to be dealing with all these problems at home. And all these threats to your faith. But despite that, the gospel will go forth. And the gospel will go forth triumphantly. This Jesus movement, again, you use that language because it was just such a small thing in the early days. It will begin right here in Judea, but it will go far outside Judea. Despite the troubling times, the gospel will go forward. And maybe Matthew writes this line, and these are Jesus' words, but, but as Matthew records them, you know, he, he's maybe writing with a smile on his face, because this is the story he's been telling since the first pages of his gospel. When the Magi came from the east to see the newborn king. And when a centurion in Matthew 8 showed more faith than many in Israel, and, and was told by Jesus, you're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while many of the fellow Israelites, will be cast out. Matthew knows how he'll end his gospel. Go now into all the world and disciple the nations. He, he knows where this story is going. And it brings him great joy to report Jesus' words here. Now, in verses 15 through 28, and these are the verses we'll look at with the time we have left tonight, Jesus begins to focus on the beginning of the end. He says in verse 15, So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We've had general descriptions. Now it seems that he's focusing his attention on something very specific, something that built up to a climax, a culmination, that results in a scattering of God's people. Now again, as I've said, I take these verses to refer to an event from our perspective in the past. The destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70. Let me read you one description of that event. And then we'll see how well these verses map on to that. This is just a general overview of what happened in those tumultuous years. The Jewish revolt began 
in AD 66. And again, notice that it's a Jewish revolt. It's, it's a revolt within Judea by the Jewish people against the Roman authorities. During AD 67 through 68, the Roman commander Vespasian conquered most of Palestine. The Roman Civil War in 68-69 led to a suspension of military operations in the east, or in other words, in Jerusalem. There was civil war in Rome, at the pause what they were doing in Israel, go back and deal with this civil war. But during that period, as the Romans withdrew, Jerusalem was torn apart by its own civil war, as different Jewish parties battled for control, with the temple, the inner courts, controlled by the Zealots under Eleazar and the outer court by John of Giscala at the center of the fighting. When eventually the Roman attack was resumed in 69, Jerusalem was already in a weakened and demoralized state. The rest of Judea was quickly reduced apart from the strongholds of Herodium and Masada. Masada is where you would have the last Jewish revolt in 135, which resulted in the destruction of the whole city and the depopulation of the Israelites, something they did not uh, get back until 1948. So when Vespasian returned to Rome to take up his new office as emperor, his son Titus put Jerusalem under siege for five terrible months until the temple and much of the city were destroyed in the fall of A.D. 70. So there's kind of your general historical summary of what happened to Jerusalem. Now let's look at these verses. Jesus refers to the abomination that causes desolation, or as some render it, the devastating pollution. Now this is an Old Testament phrase. It comes right out of the book of Daniel. And it refers, so Daniel warns the abomination of desolation is coming. That was historically fulfilled sometime in the 2nd century BC, around 167 AD. As Daniel puts it, there's this king of the north who's going to come down and he's going to abolish the regular sacrifice of the Jerusalem temple and he's going to set up this abomination, this horrifying sacrilege in the temple. Well again, in 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was one of the Greek generals who took over after Alexander the Great. Again, same thing we were talking about this morning. He's over Syria in the north and he's battling Egypt in the south. Who's caught in the middle? Judea, the Israelites. So he's coming down to fight and he deals with Jerusalem on the way. He conquers Jerusalem. He prohibits Jewish sacrificial worship. He sets up an altar for pagan sacrifices, including the slaughter of pigs, something forbidden by the Old Testament law. So just a great affront to the Jewish people. And he puts all these on the altar of burnt offering there in the temple. And things stayed that way for three years until Judas Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer, led a revolt and was able to regain control of Jerusalem purify the temple, and restore its true worship. And notice again his name, Judas Maccabeus. When we read about Judas the disciple, that's a bad name to us because we know what he does. Probably a name of great honor in Jesus' time before that. And of course Maccabeus, Maccabees, so maybe there's something in the family roots there uh, that we could look into 
as well. Well, Jesus is referring to a passage of Scripture that's well known and a historical event that is well known. Now, even in Jesus' day, it was fulfilled. It was in the past. But he's appealing to that image to say something like that is going to occur again. Maybe like what we saw this morning with the virgin birth. You've got an event in history, but it also points to a more ultimate fulfillment. And Jesus is saying, yeah, we went through this in 167 AD, but it's going to happen again. And this time, it's going to be a lot worse. And that's, by the way, why you have this little comment there at the very end of verse 15. Let the reader understand. When Jesus was answering the disciples' questions, he didn't say, let the reader understand. He's talking to disciples. But as Matthew records this, and the other gospel writers do the same thing, they put in this little clue. Hey, you hear Jesus talking about this abomination of desolation? Well, let the reader understand. He's making a reference to the Daniel image from the Old Testament. It's going to happen again in Jerusalem's temple. Well, when? When was this act fulfilled? Well, we could look at a few possibilities. One, we could just say it was some act of sacrilege, and it would alert the Judeans that disaster is about to fall. Possible, it's a little more general than I like, because Jesus seems to say, hey, when this happens, you need to flee. So here's another option, uh, again, to quote one of the commentaries. This probably took place during the winter of AD, or excuse me, probably during the winter of AD 67 or 68, the zealots took over the temple as their headquarters. And Josephus speaks with horror of the way they invaded the sanctuary with polluted feet and mocked the temple ritual while the sanctuary was defiled with blood as factional fighting broke out. Again, one of those Jewish groups, the Zealots, they took control of the temple for at least a year there and they did not treat it in the way it calls to be treated in the scriptures. They were interested in fighting out the Romans and regaining their territory. And so they polluted the temple in this effort. Here's one more option. When the Roman troops eventually broke into the temple, the presence of their idolatrous standards in the sacred precincts would inevitably remind the Jews of Antiochus. Josephus even mentions Roman soldiers offering sacrifices to their standards in the temple courts. You know what I think Jesus is referring to? I think he's referring to the whole complex of events. They take place in just a few years. They're not much separated from one another. And Jesus is basically saying, all these groups have lost sight of what God is trying to do. I mean, the zealots have lost sight because they're misusing the temple in this battle. The Romans have, of course, lost sight. They never had it to begin with. It's just an annoying religion and people group to them. And they come in and take it out. In any event, what has happened is that God's temple has been hijacked. And rather for false religious purposes or oppressive purposes from an evil government, it's all an abomination. And so Jesus says, when you see this, you know, the center of what was once God's presence in the world, misused and oppressed this way, then it's time to go. Verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their club. 
Now, by the way, these verses, as I'm saying, a lot of what Jesus says here would ring bells in his first hearers. Let me read you another passage. Now, this comes from one of the books written between the Old and the New Testaments. This is a book that's in the Apocrypha. It's not regarded as canonical. That is, spirit-inspired uh, by Protestants or by Jews. Nonetheless, it's a good historical record. You want to know some of what took place in between the Old and New Testaments? These books give you a decent history and a good insight into how Jews in Jesus' day probably thought. So listen just to this one incident from 1 Maccabees 2. Then Mattathias cried out in the town with a loud voice, saying, here's the context, he just slaughtered one of the Greek officials that was trying to get him to offer a Greek sacrifice. So this is the beginning of the resistance. And he cries out that everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. Then he and his sons fled to the hills and left all that they had in the town. At that time, many who were seeking righteousness and justice went down to the wilderness to live there. They, their sons, their wives, and their livestock, because troubles pressed heavily upon them. They were oppressed, he fought back, and what did they do? Fled to the mountains, so that they would be safe. Well, Jesus is appealing to this image while turning it on its head. Hey, those freedom fighters in the temple don't have anything to do with that. Those Romans coming to destroy Jerusalem are not going to spare you. When these things happen, go. Just as God's people once went, go again. Don't have anything to do with the fighting, but just go so that the gospel can go forward, as Jesus said in the previous verses. He does warn them, verse 19, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. So there's going to be some hardships here. The, the women are pregnant or they're nursing. I think we can easily understand that imagery. That's a difficult time to travel. Young parents find it hard just to travel down the road at the holidays with a kid. Imagine fleeing from this kind of terror. Jesus says, pray that it won't be in the winter. It can get very cold in the Judean hills in the winter. Heavy rain or flooding can make traveling conditions difficult or even impossible. Why the reference to the Sabbath? Is it just because, hey, you don't need to break uh, the Sabbath law? It, that doesn't quite seem to be the same emphasis that the New Testament views uh, the Lord's Day there, especially with the change of day to Sunday. Could it just be, hey, it's hard to travel on the Sabbath because God-fearing Jews close their businesses. You might be able to get, you might not be able to get food and provisions. Possible. But if you were to look up tonight or sometime this week, again, 1 Maccabees 2, and if you were to read the whole chapter past the verses I just read you, here's what you'll find in the next paragraph. After they fled to the hills, the authorities came after them, and they were attacked on the Sabbath day. And the first group that was attacked said, you know what, it's the Sabbath, let's not fight, let's just honor God, let's just trust Him, and they died. And so the rest of the people said, well, you know what, we think it would be okay then for us to fight on the Sabbath day. I think Jesus is probably just echoing that story. Hey, pray your flight won't be on the Sabbath, because you remember what happened last time. Those are tough times for God's people. In fact, he goes on to, to highlight those horrors 
in verses 21 through 22. Then there will be great distress, unequal, from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. In fact, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. I think I'll go ahead and wrap up here for the night. But, but Jesus is basically saying, when, when this comes on Jerusalem's temple, this is just going to be a horrible time. This is when you need to just let it go. Just get away. Let go of the past. Rethink how God's kingdom works now. Rethink how worship works now. Because judgment has come to this temple. And those are going to be terrible times. You need to go. Because you have a bigger mission. The mission of the kingdom and the mission of the church. In fact, Jesus and uh, Josephus himself, again, he's an eyewitness to one of the, to the events of 70 AD. He was involved in them. He claims none of the disasters, this is his words, none of the disasters since the beginning of the world can compare to the fate of Jerusalem. And if you were to go back and reread those passages in Deuteronomy where God says, look, if, if you don't keep my covenant, this is what judgment will look like. It's very graphic. It's violent language. And I think that is what Jesus is trying to get us to think about. Judgment is awful. And when this comes, you need to remain loyal to me and you need to go in order to preach the word. So the application I would leave all of us with is just this, pursue the kingdom and let everything else go. And thank God in his providence, we're not facing these horrors. I mean, these are sobering words. But whatever you're facing, and whatever the polls may be, wherever we're having a hard time thinking through what the gospel looks like in this day and age, what church looks like in this day and age, how the kingdom advances in our generation and beyond, Jesus gives good news. He says that that mission is going to go forward. So you go forward with me. You pursue that kingdom. You let everything else go. And you keep your heads. Jesus says, when all around you people are panicking, when there's extremists, when there's opportunists, when, there, when there's all this unrest, Jesus says, you keep your head, and you go preach that gospel, and you go seek that kingdom, and he'll be with us. So let's give thanks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus, where he tells us that he will build his church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The keys to the kingdom are given. That is, the doors are being opened. And the kingdom is coming as we pray each Lord's Day. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, increase your reign tonight in our hearts, in the hearts of those in our family, in the hearts of those in this community, those who have never bowed the knee to Jesus. Lord, bring your reign. May they know your call. And may many submit to the Lord Jesus. Begin with us. And thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.